If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only getting part of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and gain exclusive access to the first 100-episode archive, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with Dr. James Maffey about his book, Aztec Philosophy, Understanding a World in Motion. James Maffey is a senior lecturer in the Department of Philosophy and affiliate of the Latin American Studies Program at the University of Maryland. This was a fascinating conversation about the sophisticated metaphysics of the Mexica people, which in many ways bears a striking resemblance to the Eastern Taoism and Tantra traditions. In our discussion, we speak quite a bit about the Mexica concept of Teot, which can be thought of as a universal energy of movement and transformation. For the Aztecs, like the Taoists, the purpose of life was to maintain a balance of the opposing manifestations of Teot, such as light and dark, life and death, and masculine feminine. Living an ethical life meant fulfilling what Dr. Maffey calls the original obligation of the human being to feed the holy, rather than in the Judeo-Christian world, struggling to overcome the stain of original sin. If this conversation whets your appetite for learning more about Aztec philosophy and metaphysics, you can of course read Dr. Maffey's excellent book, but in the description below, you can also find a link to a really wonderful talk given by the late Mexica dancer and teacher Andres Segura Granados back in 1977, where he outlines in depth the wisdom of their philosophy utilizing images from the Aztec codices that Dr. Maffey references in our talk and in his book. And as usual, this episode is made possible through the generous support of the Howl in the Wilderness Patreon community. If you'd like to enjoy early release of full ad-free episodes and access the archive of the first 100 episodes of the podcast, please consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash Howl in the Wilderness. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Dr. James Maffey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, thanks for accepting the invitation. Um, I'm always interested in alternative worldviews. Uh-huh. And it's kind of part of my personal project, I guess, to uh, decolonize my uh, Judeo-Christian mind and mentality, which I find uh, limiting, to say the least. Yeah, it's in <laughs> so, there, deeply ingrained. You yeah, when I, well. I heard you on the Hermetics podcast. Um, ah, yeah. And uh, I was really excited by your explication of Aztec metaphysics. Um, but before we dive into that, I wonder if you could just give us a bit of your background. Like, how did an Anglo-American end up being so interested in Mesoamerican cosmologies as to devote your life to it? 
Um, haven't actually, well, not my entire life. Um, I go, well, let's see. I've been doing philosophy, I guess, since I was about 16. Um, been interested in philosophy, going in and out of philosophy. Always also had a interest in anthropology and archaeology. Um, and those two, historically, in the academy, aren't very compatible. I mean, philosophers tend to think what they're doing is somehow more transcendent than mere empirical work like archaeology and anthropology. So I did, you know, a lot of ancient Greek philosophy for a while, then did early modern. And in the, I guess in the mid-90s, this was long after I got my PhD in doing Anglo-American epistemology or theory of knowledge, um, there was this movement going on in Anglo-American epistemology and elsewhere in other areas of philosophy like ethics called naturalized epistemology or naturalized ethics. And it was a move in the academy for philosophers to try to stop doing what we might call armchair speculation, just sitting in your armchair and not knowing anything about the world, but thinking that you can come up with answers or solutions to the problems of the world by pure thought. Um, a little hubristic, but it's out there. It still dominates the academic philosophy, I think. So this move in naturalized epistemology was all about, well, let's start paying attention to cognitive psychology, linguistics, empirical sciences, in order to answer questions about human beings perceive or know, and so forth. The way most the academy went was confined to linguistics and cognitive psychology, which also took a decidedly individualistic turn, um, not surprisingly. Um, and sociology and anthropology were simply not let in the gate. Hmm. I, having a long-standing interest in archaeology and anthropology, thought that we ought to, I mean, if you're going to do this and pay attention to what human beings actually do, you ought to pay attention to anthropology, not just um, linguistics and cognitive psychology. So in the mid-90s, I was doing this, I wrote something called Towards an Anthropology of Epistemology, in which I said anthropologists should go to philosophy departments and study them, um, much the same way that anthropologists go to alien cultures and study them, go into journal offices and study them. This is sort of modeled after there's a, a French philosopher recently passed away named Bruno Latour, who wrote a great ethnography called Laboratory Life, in which he went to the Salk Institute down at UCSD, and he went in and said, I'm just going to treat this like any other tribe, right? Any other group of people, and I'm going to study what they do completely as an anthropologist. I'm not going <laughs> to... And it's a, it's really, really a fun work. I like it very much. So, in keeping with that, I happened upon City Lights Bookstore in, in San Francisco, on a book um, called Aztec Thought and Culture by a Mexican philosopher named Miguel Leon Portilla. This book was originally published in 54 in Mexico with the title La Filosofía Nahuatl, the Nahuatl philosophy, Nahuatl there being the language of the spoken by the Aztecs and still spoken by two to three million people in Mexico today. And that book 
it was much larger, the original Spanish version in 54, and it turned out it was his dissertation. And it got republished by University of Oklahoma Press in 67, something like that. And it had this new title, which pretty much turned it into an anthropology book, um, which basically meant it wasn't philosophically relevant. But I read it and just fell in love with his reconstruction of Aztec philosophy. Um, so I just started reading more and more um, historical pieces on Aztec philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics. I went down to Mexico, um, learned uh, language, Nahuatl. Um, and then, so since about 1995, yeah, about 30 years now, excuse me, that's all I've been doing. I just have never looked back, never gone don't read mainstream Anglo-American philosophy anymore. I just don't find it very fruitful. Um, so that's how I got to this place. And mm -hmm. it's terribly rewarding. It's very interdisciplinary field, art history, religious studies, anthropology, linguistics, contemporary ethnography, um, archaeology, ethno-astronomy. It's very multidisciplinary field. Um, and it's really, really fun. I mm. really, really love doing it. So that's how I got into it. Long-winded answer. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, well, okay, so where to begin? Um, I guess one of the first things to think of is that you can't really read Aztec philosophy because there's no literary record of it. Right. So I, I think it's important to mention that um, there are no primary literary sources. And so you kind of have to be... Uh, going into archaeology uh, and ethnography, like secondhand ethnography, in order to even get a, a, a glimpse of what the Aztec underlying philosophy of life might have been. Right. Mm. Uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, there, Nahuatl was not written down. Um, there were, for lack of a better word, books, books containing... Um, like pictograms? Lists pictoglyphs or pictograms or hieroglyphs. Um, scholars argue about which term is appropriate, but yeah. Um, and there were said to be hundreds and hundreds of these things in the library, but the Spaniards, when they pulled into town, promptly burned them all, thinking they were the work of the devil. But I think about, I can't remember my numbers, maybe six pre-contact codices survived people hiding them and then several were public were redrawn um shortly after the conquest in 1521 um and modeled after pre-conquest copies so there is that um so but you're right um in order to decipher those we need something so the standard sort of foothold into this is it's basically, I mean, they're ethnographies. Most, I mean, they're most famous, the most useful one is written by a guy named Bernardino de Sahagun, called the colloquially called the Florentine Codex, because that's where it ended up being stored, but it's a, called the General History of the Things of New Spain. And Sahagun was a Franciscan. Um, he arrived after, the when the Franciscans were, in, were given the charge here, of converting native peoples. And my sense is that 
when they first did it, they did it very sort of Mooney, you know, Mooney, the Mooney Temple people. You just get, you know, they marry like a thousand people in a baseball stadium at a time. The Franciscans just sort of like converted people that way. Okay, you're all Christians now. And then they were surprised that by what they called recidivism, people were falling back into their old ways. Sagoon pulls into town and thinks that, well, if I'm going to convert these people, I have to know something about them. Fair enough. Um, so by this time, there was a, a school um, called the Colegio de Tlalpololco or Colegio de Santa Cruz, in which the elder sons of the surviving Aztec or Mexica elite were required to attend. There, being native Nahuatl speakers, they also learned Latin and Spanish, so they were triliterate. And he, Sagun, came up with a series of questionnaires, sent them out into the field to interview elders. And they did that. And then Sahagun basically massages this text. Um, he's got a heavy axe to grind. So it's not a pure descriptive ethnography. In fact, some people call him the granddaddy of, of ethnography. And other people think that's just criminal to call him that. Because he wasn't there to you know objectively uh, record. He was there to get information, massage information, sort of like categorize it in ways that would promote the evangelical project. That was what he was there. That was always the overriding purpose of all of this was, how can I get the data, massage it, put it into places so that other Franciscans in the pulpit on Sundays can use it, appeal mm -hmm. to sort of native sensibilities, but get them going towards Christianity. Right. That old move like, oh, your sun god, he's like our god. We just yeah. have a different name. And so let's use this name instead of yeah. your own. And well, they, I mean, all the Aztec sort of deities end up being likened to Greek or Roman deities. So it all gets, yeah, forced right. into the crusting bed of, of Christian European thought. Yeah. And so all those various uh, deity figures get kind of paganized under Christianity. Right. Uh, and arguably and, turned into deities that they weren't ever. They were right, just more than, powerful other than humans. Right, or representations of natural processes. Yeah. Yeah. Or the processes uh, themselves. Right, yeah, yeah not just yeah. representations yeah. of, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, like uh, the Indian idea of a murti, which is like an image of a deity uh -huh. that uh, isn't just an image of the deity, but is the deity itself and is treated as such. Right, exactly. Because uh, the deity is not limited by time and space, so there can be many murtis of the deity, All of, yeah. So exactly spot on time, time frame we're talking like way back like i think 1521 is when the spanish uh started to colonize right that's and, the official date of the fall of tenochtitlan the aztec capital yeah okay yeah so that was seen as a kind of catastrophic catastrophic event the arrival of the spaniards like the death of the the sun the death of uh one age and uh, plunging into an era of darkness it's something like that in the mythology isn't it um, you know, I don't know. My sense is, I mean, that's clearly the case in the Andes, that what they call a Pachamama world turning over and that and native Andean people see the conquest by the Spaniards as the beginning of a new Pacha, new world era. I don't think the native peoples of Mexico saw it that way. I mean, they basically definitely saw their gods having been defeated by the Spaniards' gods. Um, but 
I don't think it was don't I mm-hmm. that may be a yeah. little bit over overdrawn. But I mean yeah. it was totally a catastrophe. The world came to an end. There was a population reduction of about 80, 90 percent due to you know mistreatment, murder, plague. Um, I mean, so yeah. I mean, you yeah. would have had to have thought the world was coming to an end. Yeah. Uh and I mean, I can't help but notice the like the parallels between what happened there, the methodology of the colonization project and what happened in Canada. Uh, so you mentioned the creation of this school, the Colegio de Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds to me like what we call the residential school here, uh, where uh, where native children were taken in by force and and uh, taught that their language, you know, they weren't allowed to speak their language and were, were taught English and yeah, so this sounds I like think a similar what, thing. I don't think it was. I mean, I I don't think the the Colegio de Santa Cruz was that brutal. Um, my belief is is that only the eldest sons were required to attend. They were allowed to speak Nahuatl because they were teaching the Franciscans Nahuatl because mm. the Franciscans wanted to learn it so that they could better evangel- evangelize. Sure. Um, so I've never so come across aut- anything resembling the catastrophe like- of the residential schools. Um, the Spaniards, when they took over, pretty much just tried to keep the existing aristocracy, the social political hierarchy intact, and just put themselves and the king on top. So they wanted to enlist and co-opt all the all the existing nobility or those who had survived. So it's not quite the scorched earth policy that you see in the US and Canada. North, yeah. Huh. Very interesting. So a, a kind of a different approach. Um, yeah. Another thing about terminology before we dig into the metaphysics themselves. Uh, not being an academic person myself, I often struggle with a lot of these academic terms like epistemology and ontology. Uh, you know, what's the difference? Um, uh, one of the things, so your book is called Aztec philosophy, but from the outset, you're really, you're talking more about metaphysics. Correct. Can you talk about the relationship between philosophy and metaphysics? Well, philosophy sort of is this broad umbrella term group defined according to the Greeks as love of wisdom, philo, love, sophos being wisdom. And then it has various sort of, you know, subfields. One is metaphysics, which is broadly construed as the, your theory of the nature, structure, and ultimate constituents of reality. How, what's reality put together? Does it consist of mind or matter or both? How are those, how are the various parts related? Um, Epistemology's theory of knowledge. Um, Ontology is sort of a subfield of metaphysics. It's just quite narrowly the theory of what exists or the theory of being. But metaphysics is broader because it includes things like personal identity, the nature of causality and stuff like that, which it isn't covered by ontology. So the book is called, as you pointed out, Aztec philosophy. I would have preferred that it be called Aztec metaphysics, but the publisher said, mm. <laughs> publishers have a say in book titles. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of those says is always that you have to use the word Aztec. You can't use the proper word. Mexica is what they, they called themselves. Aztecs came a lot later. It's a European term. And then they just said, metaphysics will never sell this book. Nobody knows what that is. Call it philosophy. But that's why I say or very early on that this is, you know, philosophy covers ethics, morality, and these other things. I'm They're going to have to wait for another book. Right. You got to lay the groundwork with the metaphysics on top of which everything else comes or or, or out that, of which everything comes. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's a very Western philosophical way of approaching things. Aristotle said that metaphysics was first philosophy. You start with what there is and then you figure out everything else. Um, so, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm so I don't know if that's why I did metaphysics first. It just happened to be what I did first. I mean, there are folks who argue that that approach is completely misguided when it comes to the philosophies, the indigenous philosophies of the native of, of the Americas, since they are sort of praxis oriented mm -hmm. and they don't have yeah. what what anthropologists call an intellectualist conception of of religion or belief. It's not about beliefs. It's all about actions and, you know, praxis. Um, yeah. And it, so but that's how I've unfolded my understanding and it, it's how I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an important point is that all of this, all of this categorization of, uh, of thought is uh, Eurocentric or, or Western. Yeah. Um, I, I like that though. There's something about that. It's like, uh, I think you mentioned in the book that um, there's a distinction between having a philosophy and uh -huh. like doing philosophy. Yeah. So that's that uh, theory versus praxis. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's also, I mean, I think I mentioned this book, these, I mean, like lots of Native people, anthropologists will go in and ask them what their theology is or what they believe. And they say, we don't have a theology, right? There's a famous story by, I think it is Jacques Iliad, who goes to Shrine Shinto Temple in Japan. And he pretty much says, so like, what do you guys do? What do you believe? What's your theology? And they say, we believe nothing. We dance. Um, mm -hmm. So there's this notion that praxis comes first. Belief is incidental. It's what you do that matters, not what you believe. So in an article, I say it, it's sort of they believe in what's called orthopraxy, straight or right praxis, right behavior, rather than orthodoxy, right belief. Western philosophy, Abrahamic, well, I don't know about Judaism, but at least Christianity is obsessed with orthodoxy. You got to get your mind right. You got to believe correctly. Um, and then praxis comes later. But for these folks, praxis comes first. Acting and, and the practice gets the mind right. Exactly. Because there's yeah. no mind praxis distinction. How yeah. you think is a function of how you behave and how you train your body to behave. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's one of the reasons why I'm always praxis oriented, I guess. Yeah. And so when I heard you speaking about Aztec philosophy, not, you know, not really philosophy, but their way of being and <laughs> way of viewing way of the world. Doing. Hey, way, way of doing. Act. Yeah. You got to get yeah. rid of being. It's all about process and activity and becoming. Yeah. Being sort of a Western thing. 
Yeah. And I think that's one of, you know, part of this project of exploring these other um, ways of doing in the uh -huh. world. Uh, I, I think it's so important now because I think we can learn so much from them. Um, because obviously yeah. the, the way of uh, being and philosophizing and, and getting the mind and heart right uh, and action will follow from that and all that. It's not working. Yeah. You know, it's not functioning in Western culture. No. It's broken down. Mm -hmm. yeah it's a project that is failing yeah um okay so you covered also that the, the kind of terminology around aztec versus mexica and nahuatl so nahuatl is the language group uh-huh the, the mexica are what who we call the aztecs what they called themselves yeah yeah and, and there are other nahuatl speakers in the the high central plateau of me of, of of Mexico, the Mexica weren't the only one. Nahuatl is a language which has it's in the it's called the Uto Aztecan linguistic family that originates in southwest U.S. northwest Mexico. It includes other languages like Ute, Paiute, um, Hopi, Comanche, Huicho, Cora, and others. So it's this large language group and. The, the Aztecs, the Mexica migrated from that that area um, and then settled in, in the basin of Mexico. Mm. Okay, yeah, that was my other question, like just speaking geographically, geog uh, geographically about these yeah. people. Okay, can we lay some groundwork on their metaphysics? Uh, sure. Where does it all begin? Uh, well, it begins with this notion that the world is basically consists of power, force, energy, um, and that what they call teot, T-E-O-T-L, the L is silent. Um, and that that is, I mean, that's bas the basic stuff of the universe, of the world, of you, me, dogs, cats, trees, mountains, sun, is this, this ever-moving, always-in-motion, sort of like life force, energy, um, power. That has its own in intelligence. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's not a person. So I'd be hesitant to say it has its own intelligence. It's simply chugging along. Mm. Um, like a, a mana, prana, chi, similar? Yeah, I'll... I can't say I know mana prana well enough, but chi sounds, yeah. Chi, I'll liken it to chi, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just there and it's just going and everything. Is, so there's ultimately one stuff that the world is made up of. That's this teot. And yeah. everything's made up of it and everything's constituted with it. And everything is ultimately kind of identical one with it, part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is just what's called a process metaphysics in Western thought, namely it's the world consists of processes rather than um, substances. I mean, mostly what we get out of Greek metaphysics is this idea that the world consists of things, tables, cats, dogs, trees, mountains, desks, right? And there's a substance there and there's a thing and change is what happens to those things, but it's basically... The world is made up of things or substances. Um, 
Right. And the things are inanimate until uh, something like a suke or spirit is breathed into them by a creator deity. That sounds good. Yeah. 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 So, but Teo uh, doesn't come from a deity. There's no, no. controlling creator deity. It's uh, no. this uh, force essence. Yeah. Kind of like um, the way the Tao is spoken of. It's like yeah. the, the flow of life. or Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, always in motion. Always in motion. So always changing. Always changing. Although, like the Tao, there it changes. Always changing, and there's a pattern to its changing. So, like the Tao, with this notion of back and forth with yin yang, yin yang, yin yang, right? The Toyota is always going through a, a cycle, um, and those, and much like the sort of the yin yang that complementary dualism or complementary polarities. Teot's always just going for them winter, summer, winter, summer, dry season, wet season, dry season, wet season, life, death, life, death, male, female, male, female, hot, cold, etc. Just always going. So if you imagine the, you know, the, the little circle with the teardrops in it, that symbol for Taoism, if you were to animate that and have it just rolling along, you'd see the black, white, black, you'd see yin, yang, yin, yang, just rolling over. That's pretty much how the Mashika see the world working. It's just this, this cyclical repetition. Um, and everything in it's always changing because everything is subject to and constituted by those polarities, male, female, hot, cold, wet, dry, above, below, and so forth. So everything's yeah. always in flux. So right. one of the guiding intuitions of Western metaphysics, starting with, with Plato, is this idea that what's real is that which is unchanging, right? If something's real, it never changes. So if you really love me, for example, you'll love me forever, right? And the mm. Christianity picks that up because Jesus' love is real because he'll love you forever, right? No matter what you do. It's not, you know, wishy-washy, fair-weather love. I mean, the real thing is always there. Um, and that which changes is is unreal. It's illusory, right? That comes out right. very clear in Plato's, you know, allegory of the cave. Yeah, For so the, true, rea true reality is transcendent. Uh yeah, what is manifest here is subject to change, therefore not really real. Only semi-real. It's a house of illusion, house of dreams, yeah. So that which is real is eternal and immutable. It's always there and it never changes. Because change is a sub is is a function of of inferiority, according to that view. The Mashika kind of turn that on its head and they say that which is real changes. Everything changes, reality changes. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing remains the same. And it doesn't mean that everything's an illusion. It just means that that which is real changes, mm -hmm. right? You and I grow up and we die. Trees grow up and they die. Everything is always in flux. And that's that's not a sign of some metaphysical or ontological inferiority. It's just the way the world is. So that's a very different approach because you're not looking for that rock of ages, right? That Christianity is looking for because that rock is something that we think never changes. It's a rock, right? right the the immovable. Mm -hmm. Right. But for the Mashika, I mean, rocks come and go, don't they? They look at geological history. Rocks 
change just like everything else. So it's a it's a fool's errand to be searching for this set of eternal transcendent verities which never change um, because there are none. I mean, there's Teot and Teot's rhythmic cyclical changing, but that's pretty much all you've got to hang your coat on. And uh, how was, was there a, a kind of a symbol for Teot, like the yin yang? You have a, a picture of a, a stone carving on the front of the book that has a kind of swirl oh, to it. Is that yeah. a, a depiction of Teot, we think? or Well, you can see it right there. Oh, it's in the background. Over yeah. my, uh, this shoulder. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. the cover of my book right there. Um, there is not a depiction of Teot as such. Um, that image is a an image of Teot. It's and it's motion, it's movingness, it's becoming took three principal sort of forms or shapes. One was called Olin, which is sort of like parabolic motion up and down over like this. Another one's called Malanali, and that's without and spiraling. Hmm. And then another one was called Nepantla, and it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, like weaving. Mm -hmm. um, so those, so the that's kind of like the physics of the world, how these three principal patterns of how energy changes and is transmitted in the world is in those three patterns. And that spiral is just one of, of those three. But Teot itself, there are no depictions because... I don't know. I mean, there just aren't. Yeah. I mean, maybe. some people think that's an argument that my idea of Teotas is unfounded because there isn't a picture, but other people just, you know, I'm happy to argue that some things you just don't picture. Or maybe like with that uh, way of viewing things, I can imagine that, well, everything we depict depicts Teot in one of his, it's a, uh, elements or yeah 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 absolutely yeah you're absolutely right it's all tailed yeah yeah and or like the Tao, like the Tao that can be spoken or described isn't the eternal Tao, isn't the true Tao. right mm -hmm. yeah absolutely makes sense from that point of view yeah yeah, yeah. i mean the, the similarities with Taoism are are, are striking <laughs> or what striking they are striking yeah there are lots of similarities there yeah. When I was hearing you, like one of your lectures on uh, the Aztec metaphysics, I couldn't help but thinking like these are like Mexican yogis <laughs> in a way, at least from the worldview. I don't know, probably yeah. not the, the kind of praxis part of it, uh, yeah. but at least in the conception of the world and how to um, how to remain in in the Tao, in the flow, in, in balance, in harmony, in relationship, in right relationship, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Orthopraxy, right relationship. Yeah. Of right action. Yeah. Mm. I mean, both Taoism and Confucianism are sort of praxis oriented. They don't waste a whole lot of time on beliefs. They tell you how to act. They, mm -hmm. There isn't a whole lot of metaphysical speculation going on. Like if you read Plato, Aristotle, that's all. Well, not all, but it's first philosophy. It's what you do. And for, for the most part, you know, Confucius Lao Tzu just say, this is the way you got to act. I'm not going to waste my time with all this metaphysical speculation. Um, and because of that, 
Western philosophers will argue it's not real philosophy because real philosophy has to have metaphysics. Um, but I mean, that's just ultimately sort of begging the question that, right, what we do is the real thing and what you do isn't. And I think Mashika philosophy, and I think, I don't know about all, but most indigenous philosophies of the Americas, North, Middle, South that I've come across are all sort of this praxis oriented. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you make the distinction uh, somewhere that there, uh, there are kind of two types of paths. There's the truth-seeking path, uh -huh. or, um, wait, wasn't yeah. two types of paths, but there's like truth-seeking philosophies and path-seeking philosophies, yeah. is that a better way to put it? Yeah, and so, I mean, Plato, Aristotle, and most Western philosophies, truth-seeking, we want to get to the truth first. Right, you can't act until you get to the truth. Um, and for way seeking, or path seeking, or Tao seeking, right? They are simply saying, "Look at what we want to figure out is how to act and what's the best way." Um, and we don't we're not going to sit and spend a lot of time figuring, worrying about what the truth is first. There's a uh, a parable that. From Buddhism, the parable of the poison arrow, which I sort of use here, it gets used by different Buddhists at different times. But so the Buddha or somebody's walking down a path, um, comes across a man with a poison arrow in his back or in his side. And the Buddha comes up and says, may I remove that arrow from your side? And the man says, wow, yeah, sure, I'm going to die. But before you remove it, you have to tell me the truth about the following. What was the name of the man who shot me? What's the color of the feathers on the arrow? What's the, tell me the truth about the arrow, the shaft, the poison, the tip. Tell me truth, 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 truth. The man dies. What's the moral of the story? Truth is a fatal distraction. If you're going to spend your time worrying about, you know, what is truth before you act, you're going to die. You'll never get there. So at least on some accounts of Buddhism, it teaches a way. It teaches you a how, how to put an end to your suffering in a very little concern with metaphysical speculation. A lot of that gets perverted later on by monks, but there's the idea. I mean, tell me how to behave. Don't tell me what to believe. Don't tell me what is true. Tell me the right way. So you've got this way-seeking orthopraxy going on. Hmm. But we're yeah. always obsessed with the truth, right? Tell me that I can't do anything until I get the get to the bottom of things and find out the truth. Yeah, it seems like that's the goal of uh, so much of Western philosophy, and why I have so little uh, interest in it because it's <laughs> a lot of people arguing about um, you know metaphysical truth and trying to get down to the bottom of things, and it just seems like it's a it's a never ending quest like, like you said a fool's errand uh we're never going to get there and meanwhile the world's going to hell you know the exactly. world's radically out of balance people are out of harmony um so how what good is your philosophy yeah 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 well i mean it, it yeah. seems so like profoundly commonsensical and intelligent uh way to live <laughs> you know that's why one of the reasons why i appreciate Taoism. i go well Imagine if, uh, you know, St. Paul had broke his leg on the way to do his first proselytizing. 
and uh, Christianity didn't take over, <laughs> and maybe Taoism took over. Like how different the world would be. And you know, I get caught in these thought experiments, and it just uh, it blows my mind um, yeah. how things got to be the way they are. It's like a matter of these like little circumstances, you know, things taking root, and it's wild, you know, to think yeah. of the alternatives. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean. Christianity is the, has followed the sword around the world, the mm -hmm. sword and the gun and the atomic bomb. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, the uh, so what comes out of uh, Teo is this kind of fundamental polarity and uh, this interplay, like the yin yang. It's not a duality; they're not separate, but they're always together. Whether it's uh, the male, female, the near, far, the above, the below, the dark, the light. Uh -huh. So another similarity there is they're always ever present, um, not they're separate. Mutually interdependent, mutually arising. Life arises out of death. Death arises out of life. I mean, you know, remember the you know the yin yang symbol, right? When I'd forget which one's which, but when the teardrop is reaching its fullness, you see the. In the white one, you see the black dot. In the yeah, black the one, you see the white dot. You see the seed of its opposite right there inside it. So, yeah, yeah, interdependent, mutually arising, not mutually exclusive, not out to wipe out the other one. Yeah. Not like good and evil in Western thought. Well, there's something about that that symbol that uh, gets, I think, literalized by the Western mind, looks at it and can't see it animated. So sees it as this um, stark contrast between the black and the white. And I'm not sure like our Western mind quite gets it. But if um, if they had computer graphics back then, it would have been this um, in, like this constantly changing, morphing. Yeah. Yeah, like Absolutely. each one, like kind of fractal, one growing out of the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. Eternally. Yeah. Um, so also uh, what I found really interesting is that uh, there's also kind of a five element theory hmm. in uh, Aztec metaphysics, right? Yeah, there are four sort of elements, fire, water, earth, air, and then there is motion. And motion isn't really sort of an element. Hmm. Um, but those five correspond to the five world or cosmic ages that the Mexica thought the cosmos had undergone. One dominated by fire, one dominated by earth, one dominated by air, one dominated by um, water. And then the fifth one, which is the one we currently live in, is dominated by, is defined by motion. So it's interesting that this fifth one isn't dominated by one of those four elements, but by this idea of motion. So the sun itself is called for Olin or for motion. That's when it was born and that's its name. And so that also defines this fifth age as one of motion, of change, and one which is destined to come to a come to its end, which is eventual, I mean, inevitable, um, through motion, earthquake, volcanic eruptions, things like that. Mm. Mm. Uh, I guess motion in all the way it manifests in all those other elements. So the volcano, uh, motion in fire, uh, mm. or, 
or fire itself, you know, forest yeah. fires that we're seeing, um, tsunami waves, water, yep. Yep. tornadoes with the air and the earth with the earthquaking. Yeah. Wow. So it's kind of like a alternative four horsemen of the apocalypse. Like. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, wasn't this all supposed to go down in 2012? I seem to remember some rumblings about this uh, Aztec calendar and the end of the, <laughs> the eon. Was it 2012? I pretty much ignored most of that because most of that had to do with the Maya long count. Okay. can't speak intelligently about but there's a Maya calendar, which is has some similarities with the with the Aztec one. Um, yeah, I just remember like because um, a guy Daniel Pinchback wrote a book called 2012, uh, uh, the year of Quetzalcoatl or something, and so maybe he was like kind of mixing up Mayan and Aztec cosmologies or. Yeah, there was. I mean, there Quetzalcoatl, feathered serpent, is deeply entrenched in Mesoamerica. Um, and so there is, I forget the Maya name for Quetzalcoatl, Quetzalcoatl mm. being Nahuatl, but yeah, he's there in Maya thought as well. Okay, he kind of so, shows up in di different places like uh, yeah. Hermes or Mercury or something, or he's just kind of... Yeah, I mean, it. he, he you know, he's there in Mishtek philosophy, Maya philosophy, Aztec philosophy. Um, there's just this constant sort of theme in Mesoamerican philosophy of the of this feathered serpent who combines, you know, different layers of the um, of the the cosmos, you know, air surface of the earth below the earth. You know, a snake transformation. Feathers can fly, and yet you know where it has a sort of a ducky beak who can float on the water. So it's just sort of a metaphysical theme that's. Um, like that embodied in this figure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so I guess like one of the things that I'm always interested in is how these um, metaphysics get expressed through through well, practice, through the, the art, uh, through the culture itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so there were Aztec games. There were obviously Aztec rituals that we've heard a lot about, the, the kind of sacrificial rituals. Um, and also a big part of their culture is weaving. Mm. And my wife's a weaver, and we mm. often talk about the the kind of the meaning of weaving. Like it's mm. not just the making of the thing, but embodied in the making of the thing is a is a you is a kind of like a, a way of life or a way of viewing life. For sure. You, can you speak a little bit about that and the role of weaving and fabric in, in the culture? Um, sure. I mean, woven fabric is a sign of being civilized for the Aztecs, of having a well-ordered, well-arranged, settled agricultural life. The contrast is a way of life they call chichimec, um, which roughly are kind of like wandering hunter-gatherers. And what do they wear? They wear furs. Um, so the Aztecs prided themselves on their woven fabrics, on on cotton fabric. Um, so weaving this is, I sense the principal motion defining the Aztec cosmos is what's called Nepantla. And Nepantla is this kind of there along with these two others, 
remember Olin and Malanali Nepantla is this notion of back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's a matter like in a conversation, there's I speak, you speak. We have this exchange going back and forth. So they see this is the sort of one of the defining motions of the of the of the cosmos. And human beings have to get in sync with that back and forth motion. And through this back and forth motion, you create a well-balanced relationship. So weaving is an example of that. Because as you know, with weaving, you go back and forth. The back shuttle back. goes you back and forth. You have your forth. vertical mm -hmm. warp. And then we have with your weft and you go back forth and back and forth. And so in that process, you take two polarities, warp and weft, and you bind them together, right? But they're bound together in a state of, of the Greek is agonism, of tension. Warp pulls against weft and weft pulls against warp. And if they, so my my shirt, although it looks very quiet and non-active, I mean, really the warp is pulling against the weft and the weft is pulling against the warp in order to keep it in this shape. Mm -hmm. If something goes out of whack, it becomes what we call warped, right? It becomes skewed, it becomes misshapen. So that is sort of like, not even sort of. I mean, that's the dominant way the Aztecs see the, the the cosmos unfolding is through this this weaving motion of sun. I mean, day, night, day, night, male, female, male, female, hot, cold, day, night, winter, summer, winter, summer, and you have to keep these things in balance in order so that you have a well woven, well ordered, well arranged cosmic fabric. Right. Mm. So they're the Aztecs are very adamant about having things well ordered and well arranged because that's how you keep things well balanced and that's how you maintain proper relationships. One of the guiding things about human deity relationships is you need to maintain this back forth, back forth. I gift to you, you gift back to me. I gift to you, you gift back to me. Right back and forth, so there's a balance, a harmonious. Well, I don't want to say harmonious, a balanced relationship. It's not harmonious because there's a struggle there. Um, but that's how you maintain good relationships. Other this 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 back forth motion is also exhibited in sexual intercourse, back forth, back forth, reminding you of Taoism, referring to sexual intercourse as flowery combat. Um, and actual combat, thrust, parry, thrust, parry, thrust, parry. That's how you maintain balance of this back and forth. Um, in human interpersonal relationships and in human God-deity relationships, it's always, if you give to me, I, ha I have to give back to you. And then you're accepting my gift back, obligates you to give back to me. So we're always doing this. And that's how you maintain a balanced relationship. And that's what their ethics is all about, is keeping all of this in balance through through, through reciprocity, right? So mm -hmm. contemporary Nahuatl speakers in the Huasteca part of Mexico will say, you know, the world's out of balance because mestizos and gringos are all about take, 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 take. They don't ever give back. And that's why the world's out of balance. And that's 
they they're quite keen on what climate change is about. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's really central. This notion of Nepantla of balancing, of creating something. It's not liminality, which some people think it is, but it's a matter of this in between state, which is. With you and I having a conversation, it's neither me nor you, yet it's both of us at the same time. In the middle somewhere, we meet and we create this, this interpersonal space. Right. Yeah. And out of uh, each of our contributions, we create this third thing called the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Con, with, yeah. 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 Um, I was just struck by, so you mentioned these three kinds of movement, the nepantal, the back and forth, like the uh -huh. shuttle going yeah. uh the olin which is more of a, a sine yeah. wave up and down yeah. yeah and the malinali which is like the spinning Spiral. spiraling yeah and so i think about like when you're making the thread you're spinning yeah so you start with exactly. that spinning and then also the up and down is also uh my wife's had me do some weaving on her loom and you're using pedals to to move the I guess the warp and weft up and down as you pass yeah. the shuttle back yeah, yeah, and yeah, forth. Yeah. So in the process of creating cloth, you're um kind of recreating the the world in yep. a way. Yep. Which is just so profound that um here's a way to remember how order is made in the world by making order out of uh like wool or cotton. Yep. Absolutely. There's just something so smart and beautiful about that. Is there is there a name for that where like the philosophy is um enacted through daily kind of mundane slash sacred acts? Uh like we're so integrated, the the understanding and the doing, uh, the living. I don't know if there's a word for that other than, you know, calling it a praxis oriented philosophy but i don't yeah i mean what you just explained is right spot on you get this rough cotton off the bush right and it's disordered and it's malarranged and it's disorderly and it's all messy and in spinning you start to order it that malinali orders it and it starts to order it and turn disorder into order and then like you say with weaving the olin as the up and down, right, the weft going up and over, up and over, up and over, the warp, and then they, they pantla bringing it all together. So out of disorder, you create order. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's manifested in weaving. So despite the Aztecs having this reputation of being, you know, bloodthirsty warriors, the dominant, it's not even a metaphor. I mean, this, the way the world is put together is is weaving and weaving is a female gendered activity. Yeah, that's where I the language is uh limiting me because you're right. It, it, it's it's a it's not it, it's a metaphor but it's more than a metaphor. It's Yeah. Yeah, it's not yeah, it's more than a metaphor. I don't think it's just a metaphor. I think in some sense that that act that Nepantla defines the way the world works and how you want to keep it working and how we participate in its working. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, what what's really nice about it also is that humans have this responsibility to keep the world going, which you find in a lot of Native American philosophies that humans aren't like God's made in God's image. We're not the crown of creation. We get the, you know, 
stomp, kill, pollute everything because we're special. Right, um, dominion over the world, the Christian idea. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We're special, but that doesn't give us dominion. We have the special responsibility, and that's keeping this thing to going. And what the world, I mean, the nature, how the world unfolds is contingent upon our participation in the world, right? It's mm-hmm. not like it's out there, we're over here, or we can do whatever we want, and it's just going to keep ticking. It's not for them. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a lot of discussion out uh, in you know on YouTube and uh, people having debates uh, over the necessity. Well, first of all, it's starting with the idea that okay, religion is declining in the West, and with that uh, out goes the morality and ethical system that relies on the re- religious belief. And you have people like Jordan Peterson arguing that um, there can be no true morality without religion and that to me is just so eurocentric or <laughs> christian centric abraham centric because when we look at uh at like something like aztec philosophy or taoism the ethics naturally proceed from the the world view like you said there's an obligation to help keep the world in order we're not separate from the world. We are a part of it. And so we have a job to do. And our job is to um, to create order and harmony, something like that. And so yeah. then the ethical behavior would just naturally be um, an expression of that. Without yeah. worrying about like... Um, you know, uh, appeasing a, an angry deity who will punish us if we, if we sin. And so... Yeah. That also goes to the difference between like when we think about like Aztec sacrifice, it's kind of the wrong way to think about it. It's again, um, kind of Judeo-Christian idea of sacrifice, which is you, you make something sacred in order to appease the God. But, uh, you know, Martin Prechtel, kind of, um, you know him. Yeah, yep. he's from uh, Santa Fe. He's kind of a, he calls himself a half-breed, uh, but he was also initiated as a, a kind of uh, knowledge keeper in Guatemala. And uh, so, but he, the way he talks about it is that it's our job to feed the holy. And so it's not about appeasing an angry God. It's about feeding the holy with beauty by making things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Spot on. Yeah, Mashik ethics is all about, yeah, has to do with feeding and nourishing. Um, the gods creator beings create the fifth world and as a result are left enervated exhausted hungry and they create human <laughs> beings <so> sweet <laughs> to to of course them. they're tired <laughs> yeah of course they are um and it arrives both male female right not just a male which is just silly by their lights that god, a male god could do create anything by himself but there's this notion that right they feed us right they give us corn they give us maize and we're obliged to feed them and so we nourish them and they nourish us so there's this reciprocity going on and we eat them and they eat us so it turns out to be there's no sort of in principle distinction between the sacred and the profane or the gods and humans because you are what you eat we eat them in the form of maize, they eat us in the form of blood or flesh, but most commonly, um, 
flower and song, poetry, music, hmm. um, words are the most nourishing thing that we feed the gods with because there's energy coming out of my mouth when I'm speaking, right? And yeah, I breath. I mean, so we're we're divine and they're human because we eat one another. Um, but yeah, I mean, Prechtel is right. Yeah, hmm. he's a smart hmm. guy. Yeah, I think he's again one of those people who uh, <laughs> doesn't argue over metaphysics, but is more about um, uh, feeding the holy. Is the way he put yeah. it. Like, just get down to it already. Yeah. Um, hmm. So there's this emphasis on uh, sustaining order. Now I've done some reading, and they're also like part of their ritual practice was uh, purification, right? Like taking uh, steam baths, kind hmm. of like a, a sweat lodge type thing, right. like a ritual purification. So did they have a sense of uh, <laughs> of uh, like um, of sin? You know, like what would you be purifying, your, purifying yourself of? Yeah, it's not really sin, but there's this is a notion of disorder, um, which and it's called tlatzoli, which is disordered stuff. I mean, it's disorder. I mean, think about a worn out, you know, doormat. Your worn out sneakers, worn out, you know, T-shirt, all holy and everything. Those are examples of. Tlazoli, or something which is deranged and disordered. Um, so that's a necessary part of the world, and you don't want to eliminate that. There's a specific deity named Tlazolteot, whose principal job it is, is to eat that and transform it into order. Oh, she's uh, she's often depicted like giving birth and eating yeah, shit at the same time. Maze boy. She gives birth to Senteo, maize, maize deity. So out of she eats filth or disorder and gives birth to, to maize. So I mean renewal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I mean it gets called filth. It gets translated as that, but I think it's more like disorder or mm. malarrangement. And if you think of like of humus, you need that stuff in order to fertilize your crops. You don't get rid of it. You need mm -hmm. to transform it properly. So purification has to do with trying to shed that stuff so that you can be better ordered. Um, how do you acquire disorder? Um, you can do it through a number of actions, which look a whole lot like uh, Christianity, through adultery, um, for through theft, through murder. murder. So there are lots of actions. And what you do is you, I mean, it gets discussed this way in the early translations because the Christians are have this notion of filth and dirty and purity. You 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 dirty yourself, you disorder yourself by committing adultery. I disorder myself, and my partner disorders herself. And furthermore, that sort of disorder is contagious, like the flu. So by in process of disordering myself, my disorder spreads to my family. I bring it home with me at night. Um, yeah. And so purification, things like steam baths or uh, what's called auto-sacrifice, ble you know, bleeding one's ears, tongue, penis, ankles, those are all ways of trying to regain order. 
and put that disorder somewhere else and recycle it. Hmm. It, it makes like a, a functional sense. Like it, anyone who's been in a, a in a sweat lodge or even a, a hot sauna knows that um, it's a way of kind of clearing your mind because of the the intensity and the aspect of ordeal. Like there's nothing like uh, a near death experience or, or a feeling like you're dying or uh, to really just um, clarify the mind on what's really important. Like I say sometimes that Sweat Lodge taught me how to pray authentically rather huh. than just reciting by rote the, uh -huh. the Lord's Prayer, huh. but to actually come up with these spontaneous authentic prayers when huh. faced with like this, you know, mortality, let's say. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, in a way to put me in order, you know, like get, get your, uh, get your values straight or something. Get your mind right. Yeah. 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 Get in, it's time for you to get in the steam bath. You're talking a bunch of nonsense. You're talking shit. Now go take a steam bath. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. If you enjoyed this preview and want to hear the full episode and gain exclusive access to the first 100 episode archive, head on over to patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness and join the pack. Thanks for listening.